Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. No, I'm an expert on a few things. A real, real expert on one or two. Guinea and Africa, I'm not so up to the minute. So if you know what's going on in Guinea right now, we want to hear from you. When I hear that a president is being overthrown by the military, I don't usually jump for joy, and I'm not jumping for joy with this one. Although the current or maybe deposed president of Guinea was once one of Tony Blair's great Africa adventure. The white man's burden was assumed by Tony Blair. He got to work reordering the affairs of Africa once the kaleidoscope had been shaken by the events of 9-11. And he picked favorites. Some of them are still his favorites, like Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda. Others, like Museveni in Uganda, not so much, though they were once the blue-eyed boys of the IMF and the World Bank, as well as Tony Blair, Inc. Museveni is now regarded as moving in the direction of China. There is a great ideological, geopolitical struggle going on in Africa. <coughs> on one side are the colonial powers who want to take things out of Africa. On the other side is China, which for the time being, at least, wants to put things into Africa, like roads and bridges and infrastructure and internet and try to help the local regimes and governments there to drag their people out of poverty as the Chinese state has dragged its. Of course, people are rightly anxious that we don't swap one colonial power with another colonial power. The difference is China has never acted so far as a colonial power where the actual colonial powers have been doing so in Africa for centuries. So in the context of that geopolitical, ideological struggle, everything must be seen. And so what I can see so far as happening in Guinea is that the head of an elite military force trained, in fact, the pictures are not a week old, by AFRICOM, by the American military effort going on all over Africa in a very substantial way, has captured uh, the uh, existing president of the country, whose whereabouts are now unknown. There's a fight going on, though, 
other elements of the army, not in the elite forces, are fighting to save his presidency. As we get news throughout the course of the show, we'll bring it to you. And any experts out there, I'm just the enthusiastic amateur, remember, can call the show or tweet us. Let us know your perspective on the events unfolding in Guinea. Now, of course, it's Sunday, so of course there's another Sunday newspaper scandal to be faced by the poor reigning monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, whose family have dragged her into one scandal or another. Everybody knows, and we've covered it very closely, uh, the travails caused to the Queen uh, by the activities, alleged activities, of Prince Andrew and the epstein Ghislaine maxwell victoria Jouffre affair. And we will, of course, follow that story right to the end, but this time it's uh, rather more serious even than that. Because the prince in disgrace this weekend is the one who will be king of England, king of the United Kingdom, the moment, the very moment, that life passes from Her Majesty Long Life to her, for lots of reasons. First of all, because she doesn't get into scandals, and secondly, because the moment she passes, Prince Charles becomes the king. Now, Charles has got a lot of, uh, how shall I put it, weak points, uh, but one of them is the man that he has appointed as head of the Prince's Trust, his main financial vehicle. That man has been sacked twice and brought back twice because the Prince is exceedingly close to him, especially in the past. The Prince can't live without him. He said, when bringing him back for the second time, after his second sacking. He's now been sacked a third time because of a lurid story this weekend about that individual's relationship to a squalid Saudi billionaire to whom he offered in print, in black and white, on his own headed notepaper, support for a knighthood in exchange for one and a half million pounds donated to the Prince's Trust to assist with its overhaul and upgrade of a house not that far from where I live called Dumfries House. <coughs> now these kind of things, these offerings of honors in exchange for favors happen all the time, but they are a criminal offense. And so I suppose if you're in the honours-broking business, the trick is not to get caught doing it. But this genius put it in a letter that we will support, Mr. Saudi oligarch, your application for British citizenship and the upgrading of the honour you've already got from Prince Charles into a full knighthood. Now, 
The man has now stepped down. His name is Fawcett. I know American viewers and listeners will be laughing already about that. The tap has been turned off for the moment, but the media are in full hot pursuit of Mr. Fawcett. And by extension, the man who has thrice appointed him to his right hand. When I say he's, he was his right-hand man, I don't imply anything improper there. I know nothing of the prince's private life beyond that which he himself brought into the public. But Mr. Fawcett is metaphorically not only his right-hand man, not only his deep throat through which he leaks all kinds of politically inspired initiatives and views, but is his chief factotum, his flunky in total. And now the prince is without him. If the crown is anything to go by, I can just imagine Prince Charles climbing the walls at the moment. But doesn't this story demonstrate uh, the deep corruption that lies at the heart of British public life? It's covered in a veneer of hokum pokum. It's covered in a veneer of elaborate, performative politeness. But it's just as corrupt as any potentate in Africa or Asia or anywhere else. It's just usually delivered rather more circumspectly, rather more politely, gently than it has been on this occasion. We'll be talking to the Right Honourable Norman Baker, a privy councillor. That means a councillor not to the Queen's privy, but to the Queen herself. He is the author of a very powerful book that we have showcased on the show before, and he's demanding that the Metropolitan Police investigate this cash for honours scandal. We'll be talking also uh, about Afghanistan. It seems like an age now that the Taliban have been in power. Predictably, they are scrubbing the beauty parlors and ladies' hairdressers of anything that could remotely look like a woman. Sounds a bit like Nicola Sturgeon's Scotland, where, of course, it's all chest-feeding and pregnant people, and where the rights of men to identify as women is now trampling underfoot the hitherto existing and hard fought for rights of women. We'll be touching on that subject too. I'm going to be looking at an allegation in a new book, predictably called Bombshell, against a personal, not hero, he wasn't great enough for long enough to be a hero, but someone for whom, for a variety of reasons, I hold in great affection. I refer to Bobby Kennedy. According to the author of this book, Bobby Kennedy murdered Marilyn Monroe. Yes, with his own hands, he murdered her because she was apparently about to, if you'll forgive the phrase, blow the fact that she'd had an affair 
with Jack Kennedy, the president, and Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general. I'm not sure who would have published that at the time. And for the author, helpfully, no documentation exists to support the allegation that she was about to blow and all the participants are helpfully dead and beyond suing. If that sounds jaundiced, it kind of is, but I'll give the author a fair crack of the whip. Because I'm old-fashioned. In the week that Chinese TV has banned what they call sissy men from the television screen, men that are effeminate and ordered all the networks to replace them by what they called real men, I'm here to tell you that the mother of all talk shows is presented entirely by a real man. Nobody ever called me sissy. It's going to be a great show, I think. We'll be talking about all kinds of things. But I want to close with something that is of interest generally, but of special interests where I live in Scotland. There's an organization called Women Won't Wished. Wished. Women won't stay quiet. We have reached a situation in Scotland now where, as I told you last week, and 522,416 people watched me tell you, that's how many watched the show last week, that children aged four, i.e., my middle daughter, Orla, aged four, is now entitled to tell her teacher she wants to be regarded and treated as a boy and called not Orla, but Oliver. She wants to be able to use the boys' lavatories, get changed in the dressing room with the boys, play in the boys' sports leagues at four. And worse, worse, dear viewer, dear listener, that the school will give her an undertaking that they will not tell me or her mother that that's what she's doing in school every day. This monstrous excrescence of the so-called LGBTQI plus agenda has reached stratospheric levels of madness. So much so uh, that a mosque bomber in the United States has just asked the American justice system to treat her as a woman prisoner. And so her putative mass murder will enter history as having been carried out by a woman rather than a man. It's reached such madness uh, that when men who identify as women were literally threatening with violence, the women won't wished protesters 
outside the Scottish Parliament on their pots and pans demonstration just a few days ago in Edinburgh, the police were more likely to arrest the women demanding the rights of women than they were to arrest those threatening violence upon those women who were dressed as women, who identify as women, but were in fact men. And the reason for the protest was not just these guidelines to which I have just referred, but because a woman was on trial from their organization, on trial from their organization in Scotland for wearing a suffragette ribbon, which has become uh, the motif of those that demand women's rights be protected in Scotland. She's on trial for that. It's a hate crime to stand up for women in Scotland today. Don't think I'm being parochial because all of this garbage came from the United States in the first place and it is sweeping across the Western world. Who knows, maybe it'll be implemented in Guinea if the coup goes the right way. You're watching the mother of all talk shows. Who was the best of the Kennedys? A, Jack, 43%. B, Bobby, 43%. A dead heat, if you'll forgive the pun. C, Ted, 14%. You can vote on my YouTube, on my Telegram, and above all, on my Twitter. Now, no show is complete nowadays without hearing from across the pond my dear colleague and wonderful up-and-coming broadcaster and one day I predict a politician too. She's Rachel Blevins, remember her name. Rachel, welcome, so good to see you again. I'm sorry to uh, go on about him, but I've just noticed uh, that Melania Trump has uh, started a new Twitter account, so she's not banned, even if her husband is. How long will it be before Donald is snatching the phone from her hand and, and tweeting in her name, I wonder? But speculation is mounting uh, that the orange man is going to run again in 2024. What say you? Yeah, the question seems to be not if he will run, but when he will announce that he's running. And it really is interesting to see, you know, with this 2024 field, we've even got polls already saying that if it comes down to Trump and Biden once again, then Trump could take the win on that one. You know, in terms of where social media is going to be in all of this, I think we're also going to have to ask ourselves the question of just how much the mainstream media and those big tech giants want to get out of this. Because when it comes to Donald Trump, no matter how offensive they claim that he is, the reality is that he makes them a lot of money and gets them a lot of traffic. So when it comes to, you know, mainstream media networks like CNN and Fox News, they've seen their ratings struggle as a result of 
Trump not being in office, Trump not being on social media, them not getting to talk about him. And when it comes to Twitter and Facebook, they're really going to have to ask themselves the questions. And we could actually see some backpedaling. We know with Facebook, they haven't made their final, final decision just yet. And we could even see Twitter kind of backpedal just to say, hey, actually, maybe we shouldn't be banning the president or even past president of the United States from our platform. Or future, so, or future president, yeah. because if he ever becomes president again, he might do something about us. Uh, but it's a strange situation where the Taliban have a blue tick Twitter account, but the president, as was and may be again, is still banned off Twitter. That's pretty bizarre, isn't it? That it is. And I know you. it kind of brings up a lot of the complaints that there have been with these big tech giants like Facebook, like Twitter, the ones that, you know, say that they need to go after certain political figures and they need to silence them. But at the same time, you ask yourself, whenever it comes to a lot of extremist content, or, you know, you're thinking about like ISIS videos and that sort of things, those things that are shared on social media, they're being shared on Twitter and Facebook. And so it constantly begs the question of what they're really actually concerned about whenever they claim that they have to go above and beyond to silence certain political figures like Trump, like independent journalists, but at the same time, they don't actually go against the violent content that can be found all around on their platforms. Now, uh, not a crime, of course, although a crime by omission, perhaps, was the devastation caused in New York uh, with the flooding this week, last week. Um, the infrastructure which is crumbling in the United States, as indeed it is here in Britain. We've got plenty of money for war, but not enough for the drains. Uh, how bad was it in New York, Rach? It was pretty bad. I know there were a lot of videos going all around. There's likely millions of dollars in damage. And we have to remember that this stretch all the way from New York down to Louisiana, where there's still millions of people that are still struggling to gain access to power. And it came, it hit Louisiana on the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, which was another devastating storm. And it does serve as a reminder that Congress really needs to get on it when it comes to infrastructure and actually focusing on this country. Because the reality is that, yes, when it comes to Mother Nature, there's only so much you can do, right? We're, we're going to expect hurricanes. And with the way that the United States is going, we're going to expect weather to get more and more drastic every single year. But when it comes to that all too important infrastructure, that doesn't really seem to be their focus at all. Even though they claim, you know, that they want to throw around billions of dollars in infrastructure spending. Well, at the same time, there's also a movement in Congress to increase the United States defense budget, to increase military spending by $24 billion dollars next year and the Biden administration didn't even ask for that they wanted to keep it normal right around 715 billion dollars for next year alone but there's a movement largely of Democrats that is pushing to increase spending to 740 billion dollars all while they're sitting there claiming hey we ended the Afghanistan war you would think that that would make spending go down a little bit or that that would move the funds over towards things that the American people actually need to deal with. But no, instead, they just want more money all around, it seems like. So the president and the defense secretary didn't ask for extra money, but <laughs> the Democrat-controlled Congress is forcing them to accept it. Yeah, that is exactly right. And that's, I mean, what, what kind of world would we be in where this was the case that after 
20 years of this so-called war on terrorism, now you've got Congress on board with looking at the next front because they're wanting to take that additional money and spend it on new aircrafts and new materials. And it, it really should make the American people wonder, which far too many of them don't actually hear about it, but it should make them wonder what in the world their Congress is doing when they're sitting here dealing with natural disasters, dealing with their infrastructure falling apart. And yet all of these elected politicians are just sitting in Washington saying, hey, you know who needs more money? The military. I know who wants to, needs more money. Hunter Biden. Uh, I saw the president of the Ukraine sitting with Joe Biden. Joe was asleep, of course, as is his wont when visiting statesmen come calling. Actually, uh, maybe he had the right idea with the Prime Minister of Israel and the President of Ukraine, perhaps sleeping through what they have to say isn't a bad idea. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the President of the Ukraine uh, seemed very familiar uh, with the Biden family, uh, familiar enough to tweet a list of financial demands. Are they going to be met? Is the American taxpayer going to throw still more money uh, into the Ukraine? And uh, how much of it comes back uh, to the Biden family and other bloodsuckers? You know, it is more likely than not that those demands are not only going to be met, but that the American people aren't even going to have any idea about it, because that's kind of what brings the media coverage and all of it, what they choose to cover and what they choose not to cover. And when it comes to someone like Hunter Biden, when it comes to the Biden family, that's not a topic the media really wants to touch on, because they don't want to get themselves into another one of those, you know, Hillary Clinton laptop hyperloops where they're talking about it over and over again. And I think for the Biden family, they're lucky in the sense that Ukraine is kind of one of those close U.S. allies that Congress is going to continue to help out, continue to pour money into no matter what. You know, when it comes to a new military aid package for, say, $60 million, they're all about that. They're good with that. And that's something that works in their favor. And I think when it comes to, you know, the media coverage of all of this, now that they're looking at, Donald Trump most likely definitely making a run in 2024, then they have to kind of soften the blow when it comes to any possible criticism of Joe Biden, of his family, because they're looking at another race between the two of them and wondering if it's possible if Biden is actually going to lose to Trump instead of it being the other way around. Trust me, Biden won't be the candidate in 24. <laughs> I don't want to be unpleasant, but uh, uh, you wouldn't send him out to buy a loaf uh, never mind, let him run again uh, in two and a half years from now. Um, somebody else that's not needing money is Rachel Maddows. She of the uh, takes onion from pocket, takes handkerchief from other pocket, dabs one's eyes. She's always breaking into tears at, uh, at uh, Donald Trump, at the withdrawal from... Afghanistan and so on. She's just got a bumper new contract. Eat your heart out, Rachel. $30 million a year for reading the news. 
That is crazy. I mean, that, especially when you have to remember that Rachel Maddow is the same person who sat there and told the world that Russia was going to attack our power grid in the dead of winter and that millions of Americans were going to freeze. She sat there and put that out there as an actual warning. They allowed that to run on the airwaves, and then now she's getting rewarded with an even new, even bigger contract than ever before. And I think part of what's so crazy about it is you think about the fact that, you know, here in the United States, they'll run these polls every single year where they talk about how many Americans trust the media as a whole. And every single year they keep getting lower and lower. And this is Democrats and Republicans both saying they do not trust the media. They do not trust these networks like the one that Rachel Maddow represents. And yet they have no problem handing her $30 million. I mean, that something doesn't compute that there. That should make the American people start wondering how it's possible that at a time when their trust isn't in these mainstream networks, they continue to be so incredibly profitable. Uh, as our colleague uh, Lee Camp uh, pointed out, uh, this business could be summarized thus. Media houses worth $10 billion uh, pay $10 million, in Rachel's case, much more than that, to television hosts to convince people on $100,000 that the people on $10,000 are the problem. I thought that brilliantly yeah. summed up uh, the American media scene and indeed to uh, a great extent the British uh, media scene. But the good news is uh, people are switching off and switching over, aren't they? CNN's on the floor. Uh, CNNBC is on the floor. Uh, the future is not great for these uh, platforms. You, you would hope so. And I think that especially as we see, for those of us where, you know, we continue to build our presence on social media, because social media has been the biggest thing that has worked in our favor of people actually being able to turn off the TV, to get on YouTube, to watch live streams, to get on Twitter, to see what's actually happening instead of just what all of these talking heads tell them is happening. And I think that that's why there is such a push, not only for all of our voices to be allowed on social media, but for it to stop restricting those voices, because that's when people are actually able to see what's out there. And it presents this incredibly important narrative shift, especially at a time when you know we're watching congress want to increase the defense budget well there's a good chance that they're going to start pushing for if not a new war then some new kind of bombing you know like in the in afghanistan whenever the biden administration was the one stand, standing there saying hey we bombed afghanistan it was super successful we took out what they referred to as an isis k facilitator yet you get on social media and then you actually get to see real people talking questioning why 10 civilians were killed, including six children, questioning not only why they were taken out, but why the Biden administration was so quick to just shrug it off and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we got a member of ISIS-K. That would not have happened if you didn't allow that discourse. And in other times, people would just have to rely on what was said on TV or printed on the newspaper, and they would just shrug it off and say, oh, well, clearly the United States is going after terrorists, when that's not always the case. Well, uh, with all respect to all other uh, forms of media, uh, plays and books and, and, uh, and radio for that matter, film is the most important of the media. And on your social media output, you make brilliant use of video. Uh, it's fine, I do it all the time, 
writing pungent or even purple prose, and it goes so far. Uh, but video, film, goes far further, don't you think? Oh, absolutely, and I, I appreciate that. I think that that is one of those cases where it, you know, in the media industry, they always joke and they say, well, if it bleeds, it leads, which is to say that the audience wants to see something. They want to actually see something that provokes some sort of emotion in them. And all too often, you know, if you turn on the TV, what you're seeing is something that is going to lead to more and more fear. They want to stoke the fear. They want to stoke the divide among the public so that they will keep tuning in. But I think the power of social media and the power of what we're able to put out there is to remind people that it's okay to have a conversation. It's okay to question the narrative that's being put out there. And in fact, it should be, they should want to question that narrative and they should want to actually see the on the ground footage. And, you know, I really hope that this continues to create a movement that goes on far longer than you and I are around to be able to talk well, about. Well, you'll it. be around uh, for a long time, uh, by the grace of God. Uh, follow Rachel Blevins, if you're not already, on Twitter and online. Rachel, thank you very much, as always, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, now, who was the best of the Kennedys? Jack, 44. Bobby, 44. It's a dead heat. On YouTube, Jack, 50. Bobby, 33. Ted, 17. On Telegram, Jack, 39. Bobby, 39. Wow. Ted, 22. You see, the Telegram uh, viewers are the more discerning. Uh, because if I was voting in this poll, my vote would be for Ted Kennedy, who would have been a truly great American president, I believe. Let's take Thomas in South Texas. Go ahead, Thomas. Hi, George. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you well. Thank you. Awesome. Um, huge fan, first. <laughs> huge fan of your work, of your just great takes on geopolitics. And I'm also a great fan. Uh, sorry, I'm a great fan of uh, RT and Sputnik. I think y'all do great work. Thank you. Yeah, so I just want to ask you, um, I know you were uh, somewhat, I, I say somewhat, you know, in a very generous sense, you were somewhat close to um, former Iraqi President Hussein. You really defended him, obviously, and I do think he did a lot of great stuff, and I think toppling him was obviously, <laughs> I mean, objectively, probably one of the worst sins of the West for the, in the 21st century. Uh, I am curious why you are so quick to defend Saddam Hussein and yet chastise other Arab leaders like Muammar Gaddafi, who, you know, <laughs> I, in my view, Gaddafi was one of the greatest statesmen of the, of the 20th and 21st centuries. He made the second poorest country in Africa to the richest country in Africa. He lifted so many people out of poverty, so I want to know why you chastised him so harshly, or at least in the past chastised him so harshly. Well, uh, first of all, you're quite wrong to say uh, that I was somewhat close, uh, as you, uh, I think, delicately put it, uh, to Saddam Hussein. I met Saddam Hussein twice in my entire life, the same number of times that Donald Rumsfeld met Saddam Hussein. The difference was that Donald Rumsfeld met Saddam Hussein to 
sell him guns and gas and to give him maps the better to target them with. Whilst I met Saddam Hussein to try and bring about an end to the suffering of sanctions and war uh, on Iraq. I did not defend Saddam Hussein, I defended Iraq and I am very proud to have done so. I, uh, I would have been proud in any case, but when I see uh, the utter carnage and chaos that has been cascaded around the world uh, by the invasion and occupation and destruction of Iraq, yes, I'm proud to say uh, that I gave every breath that I had to try and stop the United States and my own government committing the blunders and crimes uh, that they went on to commit. And every single day, I feel more vindicated in the defense of Iraq uh, that I made. As for uh, Muammar Gaddafi, uh, I'm not his number one fan. Uh, Libya was a very small country with a very small population. Uh, when he took power, just two millions of people uh, sitting on top of an ocean of oil. Uh, so it was not difficult to make uh, Libya rich. Uh, but the uh, richness of Libya compared to the rest of Africa is not the question. The rest of Africa was not a population of two, three, four million by the end. Uh, on top of an ocean of oil. Uh, the real question, therefore, is why was Libya not richer uh, than it should have been? Uh, why was it not richer than it was? Given the amount of oil wealth, many trillions of dollars of oil wealth harvested by Gaddafi and his state, Every Libyan should have been a multi-millionaire. Libya should have in its public infrastructure and its public realm looked like Dubai. Uh, but neither of these two things is true. Off the main highway in Tripoli under Gaddafi, there were unpaved roads. There were roads with no streetlights, uh, people had to go abroad with money from Gaddafi, sure, for medical treatment, for education. But Libya could have had the world's best hospitals and the world's best universities, but it didn't. That's my point. But if you ask me, which I infer from your question, you're asking me, was it right to, for NATO to back uh, the jihadist mobs uh, that murdered him after sodomizing him with an iron bar? Was it right for NATO to support Al-Qaeda against Gaddafi? Of course, the answer is a resounding no. 
I opposed the war on Libya. I opposed the strategy of building up the Islamist opposition to Gaddafi. And if you're asking me, and I'm going to infer that you are, is Libya better today after Gaddafi than it was before? Well, I don't even have to answer that. Only a madman, only a lunatic would claim that today's Libya and Libyans are better off than they were before the overthrow of Gaddafi. We have all paid a very high price for the disaster of Western policy towards Libya. So you'll get what I see as the truth. I will not hail Gaddafi as Lenin or even as Saddam. I will not pretend that he was a great and philosophic a leader. He was not. And it takes some doing, you know, to make Libya worse, much, much worse now than it was under Gaddafi. Uh, should Prince Charles succeed to the throne, 31%, down one, abdicate for Prince William, 40%, the same. See, make way for a republic, for a president, 29%, up one. On YouTube, 25% uh, think that Prince Charles should succeed, 29% that he should abdicate, but 46% think we should go for a republic and have a president. How very interesting that is. And on Telegram, uh, only 13% think he should succeed, 31% think he should abdicate, and 56%, a clear majority, think Britain should have a president rather than a king. Now, Matthew Capucci was another very popular guest, a controversial one, but a very popular one, uh, on climate change just a few weeks ago. Since when, the climate has been bucking like a bronco. Uh, it's boiling hot some places, it's a freezing cold summer where I live, and in America, there are floods. Boy, are there floods. So, Matthew has kindly agreed to join us again on the mother of all talk shows. Matthew, I don't know if you uh, saw some of the criticism uh, following our last discussion. I remember seeing you disdain to engage with some of it. Uh, which uh, was, was simply uh, ill-mannered uh, and, uh, and disrespectful. Uh, but if I were to summarize, it would be to say that they call you a climate change denier. I myself formed no such view of you. Uh, I, if anything, thought that you were relatively close to my own uneducated, untutored position, that there's always been climate change. And that whilst we should endeavor to live as clean a life as we possibly can, 
with as little waste as we can possibly produce and with sustainability always in mind, we can't go back to the Stone Age to try and uh, turn back the tide. That's my view. Am I wrongly ascribing it to you? Well, certainly the climate always has changed. The issue is now that human action and human intervention is accelerating that change more quickly than our infrastructure can keep up. There's certainly nothing inherently bad in of itself in the conditions that we're expecting, but it's that our infrastructure isn't ready, so it has a net negative effect. So ultimately, uh, I'm very confident that humans are altering the climate largely in pernicious ways. I think I, I get a lot of criticism, though, from sort of both sides of the aisle in that there are people who think I don't sort of push climate change enough, and there are people who think that I make too much about climate change. And ultimately, I've realized there's no way to satisfy everybody. But I'm not in the business of here trying to, to satisfy people. I'm in the business of trying to communicate strictly the science that we know and strictly the implications of said science. And what we know is that the climate has always changed, but that human action is also causing significant climate change and that we have to respond to that. And ultimately, our infrastructure is at risk. Flooding is one of the things that tests our infrastructure most severely, isn't it? Uh, we have crumbling infrastructure in your country and in mine. Uh, in mine, uh, much of the infrastructure that deals with water is, is from uh, not even the 20th century, but oftentimes the, the 19th, certainly my own, is. Uh, the... The recent flooding in the United States, how has that affected your thesis, if at all? One of the things that we know about climate change is that for every degree Celsius the air temperature increases, the air can hold about 7% more water, which means you start tacking on a couple degrees of net warming over the course of however long, there are flecks in very high-end rainfall in these short little bursts, and that's exactly what we saw last week on Wednesday night in parts of the Mid-Atlantic in New York City and, and really the Northeast. We had areas that saw about 3.25 inches of rain in just one hour's time, so more than eight centimeters in just an hour's time. So they're getting about a month's worth of rainfall in a single hour. And events like that are very strongly tied to climate change. In fact, in the Northeastern United States, we've seen about a 55% increase in these ultra high-end climate change or climate-fueled rainfall events. And so we're very confident in the connection between very heavy rainfall and human-induced climate change. Now, other things, for example, like the tornado that hit Maryland, people were angry at me for not connecting that to climate change. And, and really, we're not confident in our connections there. So for me, it's about connecting what we know and not connecting what we don't. And some people get upset about that. Ultimately, it, it's, it's a matter of sometimes my uh, sometimes science being incompatible with their worldview whether they're very pro-climate anti-climate whatever ultimately we know that floods are very much connected to climate change we know that tropical activity is fueled by climate change particularly in regard to rapid intensive uh, rapid intensifying storms and storms that reach these high tier category four category five strengths as they did in the u.s gulf coast so there are things we know that are connected to climate change and other things that aren't really linked and that's just kind of how it goes and I'm guessing that New York City's infrastructure isn't exactly tip-top. Is that how it turned out? I think the city was built largely for one to two inches of rainfall per hour. When we get three, three and a half inches of rain in a single hour's time, even more in some places, more than four, the infrastructure just can't handle that. And when you consider, too, the result of urban sprawl, all these areas that now have pavement, that have cement, that are completely paved over and offer no area 
for the rainfall to drain, it starts funneling into the subway systems, grinding rapid and public transportation to a halt, and you get this cascading effect that has implications all across the city and really across the transportation sector. And so the infrastructure is aging. It is not what I would consider modern in many areas. Of course, many Americans believe it is modern just because they're provincial and haven't traveled much. I'd like to see a significant investment in, in infrastructure and really planning for these higher end events that in previous years might have only occurred once every 200 to 500 years. Now we might be talking every 15 to 20 years. So we need to sort of change the benchmark that we're planning for. And how has this year's climate been? Uh, is it markedly uh, hotter uh, this year? I must say it didn't feel that way to me. So ultimately, when we talk about the climate of an area, it's a 30-year average. So naturally, we're expecting some ups and downs and some ups and downs. In Europe right now, parts of the area have been under a pretty good down. Uh, parts of the southwestern United States have seen their warmest summer on record. And so there are ups and downs across the board. It's more just that the ups outweigh the downs at this point, and there's semen could do so every year. Very confident we'll be in a top 10 warmest year on record. Uh, we'll have to wait until December to see, but really it's, it's one of those things where now every year is kind of reaching one of those top tiers. Even if in a local area we're not running overly hot, you know, globally the average is very much skewed warm, and that that has the implications of more water vapor in the air or changing the jet, the jet stream and stuff like that. Now, uh, I, I absolutely concur with your view on infrastructure uh, for lots of reasons, not uh, only uh, because of climate change. Uh, infrastructure spending generates economic activity, it generates local demand, it provides jobs for people, it's, uh, it's a multiplier. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm wondering what you think we should be doing to try and slow down the runaway train of climate change itself. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think humans are inherently selfish in that anything we do right now realistically won't have much of a bearing on the conditions that we face. The climate is kind of like, as you said, a runaway train. And so slowing down a train or getting into reverse direction, which is unreasonable, uh, is very challenging and takes a long stopping distance or a long distance to change. And so in our lifetimes, we really don't have that much time to do so. The conditions are already moving. And even if we stopped emitting today, the climate would still continue to warm thanks to ocean outgassing of CO2 and, and thanks to all these other processes that are already in motion. 
And once you start tipping that scale, it's like dominoes. There are these reinforcing positive feedback mechanisms. So ultimately, we're not going to see an overnight change. We need to start playing the long game in that we need to understand any conditions or any actions we take aren't really going to help us that much. They'll help our children, our grandchildren, stuff like that. Getting policymakers to do that is, is telling them to be selfless, which is a challenge. The other thing I think we need to start doing is being smart about our infrastructure. Why are we building houses on stilts right next to the ocean when inevitably there's going to be a hurricane? It's going to be a strong hurricane somewhere. Why are we building in floodplains? Why are we planning our flooding infrastructure based on 100-year events rather than 500-year events? It's that we're making consciously poor decisions reinforced by the, the, the inveterate practices of yesterday's infrastructure building. And really, we're, we're sort of reinforcing the old rather than trying to adopt the new. But isn't, uh, you talk of selfishness, much of the, uh, sort of, we've just had two weeks of uh, the so-called Extinction Rebellion causing uh, mayhem in London. Uh, not very environmentally conscious mayhem, I should say, at that. Uh, left an awful lot of trash for people that are against trash. Uh, their argument is essentially anti-growth. Whereas for someone like me, of my politics, I think that's selfish because they can live with no growth. They already live in a rich country and they're almost always the children of quite wealthy people. It's other people that need growth, need the generation of more wealth so that they can get themselves out of poverty in our kind of country and uh, by extension across the world so that the poor world can become more prosperous. How do we, how do you square that circle? I think ultimately people won't do something unless, on a large scale, unless it is financially sensible for them. And that makes sense because there are a lot of people who are in financial situations where they don't have the extra money to invest in something that may be better for the planet long term. And I can't blame them. If, you know, I, I'm, I'm decent off, but if someone tells me I can buy a green car for $70,000 or I can buy my truck, I, I, I drive a gas guzzler for $30,000, I'm going to choose a $30,000 car because financially that's what's feasible for me. I can't afford a $70,000 car. Until that technology is made available in a financially competitive way and an economically friendly way, it won't be adopted. Now in the United States, solar energy is cheaper than natural gas, than coal, but the government has historically tried to sort of stand in the way of solar and stand in the way of wind and stand in the way of these different projects because in many areas, votes are, are based on sort of the, votes come from communities that have built themselves around the dying fields of coal and the dying fields of, of sort of fossil fuels, which, yes, we still need for some things, but, but uh, it seems like in some places people sort of resist change just because it's based on what they know versus sort of a, a hop into the unknown, even if the unknown is ultimately better and more financially feasible. So overall, I think people won't do anything unless it makes financial sense for them. Even I wouldn't. I know what the right answer is. The right answer is for me to drive a greener car, but I don't have that kind of money, so I can't do that. And until on a large scale that's made available for people, it's not going to happen. That's fascinating stuff. Thank you, Matthew Capucci. I hope you'll come back 
and talk to us again, uh, but hopefully not in the wake of the kind of terrible flooding that we saw in New York. Thanks a lot for coming on the mother of all talk shows. Now, the poll is going uh, great guns. Should Prince Charles succeed? 31%. Abdicate for William? 40%. Make way for a president? Just 29%. Although, on YouTube, 45% of people want us to have a president. And on Telegram, 54% want us to have a president. You'd think Telegram was Russian-owned or something. Uh, Emile Persot says, bold of you to assume the Queen won't live forever. Long life to you, ma'am. Jonathan Wood says, no place for a monarchy as it currently exists. As Norman Baker's excellent book sets out, Norman Baker will be with us in the last hour. Our royal family and their collective actions are entirely in conflict with a democracy. Then there's the extreme privilege and wealth which is immoral and unsustainable for workers. Are you listening? Says, abdicate for Andrew would make good headlines. And Will Carpenter says, in a couple of generations, I believe the future of monarchy will be a hot political topic. The Queen is holding it steady. What comes after her will be very different. And Attila says, there needs to be a referendum on the monarchy when the Queen passes. At the very least, the population should be allowed a vote on who succeeds her. Kevin Hughes says, it's hard to believe that we're still having this conversation in the 21st century. Maybe we should sidestep the feudal traditions and royal protocols and just crown Fawcett to the fence. <laughs> Marek says, for all the bad press Prince Charles gets, he actually does a great deal of good. Do tell. It is he who stands up for persecuted religious minorities, and seriously, anyone who's ever met him would tell you what a nice guy he actually is. I'm quite a nice guy, you know, if you want to offer me uh, the gig. Captain Thunk says, hide the crown jewels, then abdicate in favour of William. Giggle like a schoolboy at William's coronation. Very, very witty, droll, and very interesting. Uh, now, uh, should Prince Charles, A, succeed, 31%, B, abdicate for William, 40%, C, make way for a president, maybe President Tony Blair, uh, or, uh, I don't know, President uh, um, Piers Morgan. Careful what you wish for. Uh, you can still vote. It's still running on my Twitter feed. Now, wherever you are watching this show, please take a second and hit the like button. It's really important that Mr. Algorithm knows how much you like this show. And please do share it. If you're on Facebook, please share it with all of your contacts. Now, how about this news on our podcast? Once again, thanks for downloading the podcast of this show. It's a kind of distilled version, shorn of all uh, extraneous matter. Uh, we've broken our daily listener record again this week. We are now being listened to in 79 countries. 
We have listeners in Afghanistan. I wonder if we've still got them. Mexico, Peru, Gibraltar, and Russia. And the Moats podcast, get this, is now in the top 10% of all podcasts in the entire world. And we've been charting in Australia, Brazil, and Spain. So if you want to catch up on the podcast, I say it's a bite-sized version of this three-hour show. It's available from tomorrow evening. You can download it from Apple Music, Spotify, Deezer, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts from. It says here. Uh, now, the phone numbers, if you're in the United Kingdom, it's 0808196552. That's 0808196552. If you're in the United States, it's toll free. It's free in Britain and the United States. And in the US, the number to call is plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. That's plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. You can email the show at any time uh, on air at moats.tv. And uh, don't forget that next Saturday, 9-11, I will be speaking in Leicester. Uh, students go free. I'll show our critically acclaimed, I think I can truthfully say that, uh, critically acclaimed film, A Killing Kelly, which I made with the outstanding Irish film director, uh, Sean Murray. Uh, we'll show the film, we'll answer questions on the film and probably say uh, something and answer questions about other burning political matters also. So it's in the uh, Secular Hall in Leicester. Students go free, the details are everywhere. I'm not sure what time uh, it starts, but you can go to ticketsource.co.uk forward slash Killing Kelly. It's at 2.30. Let's take some calls. John in Dorset thinks I'm anti-American. Let's hear you. Go on, John. Um, well, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure uh, whether you are personally, but I think generally, uh, you know, uh, the consensus of the media seems to be that America is um, the Satan. Uh, the, the... Let me just say something um, before I start that. I've never heard anybody say murder better than a Scotsman. You were talking about Bobby Kennedy. I think there's something about you that adds a little bit chill factor. Tagger. To the actual... <laughs> I'll tell you, John, no, before, had... before you go on, um, yeah. one incarnation of this show, the mother of all talk shows, was yeah. on a New York radio station called WBAI, uh, yeah. operated out of Wall Street of all places. And I yeah. used to present it every week. And every week, women would call up and yeah. we assumed that they had a question to ask. And yeah. every week, these American women would say, I don't have a question, Mr. Galloway, but would you just say the word murder? And I would lean right up to the microphone and say, murder. And they loved it. Well, they'd, you, they'd, you giggle, they'd, giggle, they'd giggle and run away. 
<laughs> Listen, um, uh, all I wanted to say was that if I can paraphrase Winston Churchill, who said something something like, democracy is probably the worst way of running a country, but it's better than all the rest. Apart from, now, all, the, apart from all the others, yeah. Yeah, something like that. I'm not very good at quote. Yeah. But, I mean, the thing is that about America, uh, look, you know as well as I do, as I do, but there's probably about 29 Uncle Sams, and they're not all white, and they're not all called Uncle Sam. But basically, uh, I, I just think that uh, if you look around the world, if America fails, we're in big trouble. Oh, really? Uh, and I, that, 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 that's my opinion. Well, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's go through them, Siri Atom. Russia. John, let's, Russia. Uh, let's go through the American failure in Vietnam. Uh, of yeah. course, failure doesn't quite describe... Uh, the murder of millions of people. Uh, no. A very large number of them, women that look like my wife and children that look like my <laughs> children. So uh, the Vietnam yeah. War is uh, very important to me. Uh, what about that American failure? Did the world fail because American failed in Vietnam? Yeah, I, I think it was a terrible failure, and, I'm, and I wouldn't disagree at all. But what I'm saying is that right looming on the horizon, is the uh, we're told that China are possibly going to take over from America. Now that sends. I mean, I won't be around, and I don't suppose any of my mates will. But you know, for for the rest of you know, for the young folk, I think that is absolutely terrifying. When you China, say take over, John, what do you mean take over? Well, I mean they'll be the richest. So whoever's got the most dough has got the most influence. Whoever's got the most influence, uh, take over. Well, you're That's right. Uh, China will uh, one day soon be the biggest economy yeah. in the world. But I've, I've yet yeah. to see any evidence that they want to take over. There's no Chinese ah. basis, none at all, in foreign countries. Uh, China doesn't have military bases in Britain or all around the United States. Chinese warships are not sailing off the coast of Britain or the United States. It's the other way around. Hong Kong. Hong Kong is in China. No, I'm saying that they're taking over Hong Kong, aren't they? Or, 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 or how can they you take moving? over your own country? No, but I mean, it, it, it's, it's very much like uh, they do it, uh, you know, by means of t the uh, money. I don't think they're going with rifles yet. But I do think that they go in with their influence. Well, uh, that's and they the wrong example you gave. You could have given better examples because yeah. Hong Kong was taken by us from China as oh, punishment yeah. for their refusal to allow us to sell heroin on the streets of China. Uh, well, so if you're uh, looking for a baddie in the Hong <laughs> Kong story, that baddie is us. I think, yeah, we would all, you know, I think anybody who's at the top of the heap is terrible. Anybody who takes over, anybody who has any influence over anybody else's country is no good. We were no good. America was no good. And China is going to be worse. Why worse? I'm, I'm, just I'm still struggling as to where you get this conclusion worse. Worse how? <laughs> the, food would, the food would be better. Well, I mean, I don't eat fruit bats, do you? Well, Chinese food or hamburger, give me the Chinese I, I food. Even, but, I don't even eat cricket bats. But, but the point is, <laughs> the point is, China so far, and you haven't given me any examples, isn't yeah. trying to take over anybody. 
No, uh, well, they've taken over their entire country by means of being a totalitarian so-called Chinese <laughs> communist state. But they, I, I don't see that... How can do you they take know? over your whole country, John? Oh, yeah. I mean, the same as the, you know, governments have taken us over. I mean, I'm a working-class kid, and I've been taken over ever since the very first... If you're a working-class kid, you've <laughs> been kidded. You've been kidded into believing that the guy over there is your enemy, when in fact the enemy is at home. John, thanks for the call. Basant is in New York. Let's hear from him. Um, hello, George. Thanks for having me on again. Welcome. Um, I just wanted to talk a bit about the floods um, yeah. and, and the rain we saw. Um, luckily, I wasn't affected much, though I know some people who unfortunately were. But I was outside just walking in the city on the day, um, on the afternoon it was about to happen, and there was no preparation. Um, the subways were not closed, and later many subway cars were stranded in, in flooded stations. Like, roads were not closed. Was there no forecast? There was no warning that there was about to be uh, a no, year's it, worth of rain in an hour? It was a very slow-moving storm. It was heading northeast over days. It had already caused, um, like, disaster in Louisiana. So the next day when I heard Schumer and Hochul and de Blasio and then even Biden... And all they would say is climate change after 20 or more people had died in the area. Um, like, they would just bring up this nebulous concept that none of them had a solution to. Um, I was really enraged because, really, hurricanes have always existed. And, sure, it might increase their intensity and their regularity. But when you have a direct hit, as New York faced, obviously there's going to be damage and possibly flooding. And instead of taking responsibility for this, as in the fires in California, they just blame this hazy construct, um, when the reality is natural disasters can be planned for and mitigated. Um, and I didn't see any evidence of our local authorities doing that. Very powerful indeed. Thank you very much for that update, Basant. Uh, who was the best of the Kennedys? Jack, 41. Bobby, 46. Ted, 13%. There's a very, very close result there on all three platforms. You've still got 15 minutes or so uh, to vote. Now, it's Sunday, so there's another royal scandal in the newspapers. One man who keeps a forensic eye on royal finances is my former parliamentary colleague, the Right Honourable Norman Baker, who joins us now, and I'm grateful. Norman, as always, I know you've got your own radio show on a Sunday night, uh, so thanks for fitting us in. Um, the uh, case on the face of it is unanswerable. The uh, fool faucet uh, put down on paper that which you and I know is usually corruptly mumbled uh, into ears in the corridors of gentlemen's clubs uh, around, uh, uh, around St. James's. Yes. Indeed so, George. And if you look at the letter which was published in the paper today, it not only links the giving of an honour and the support for citizenship with money coming into the prince, but it talks about what will happen in the future. Um, so there's no question, I'm afraid, that uh, it seems to me an open and shut case, which is why I have written to the 
Metropolitan Police Commissioner Cressida Dick, asking her to start an investigation for uh, what appears to me to be prima facie evidence that an offence has been committed under the 1925 Honours Act. I agree entirely uh, it's an open and shut case, and I agree entirely it's a very clear uh, offence under the Act. Uh, the question is, who did the offending? Uh, Mr Fawcett, the Prince's right-hand man, or the Prince himself? Well, you know, of course, Prince Charles has been busy trying to put distance between himself and Michael Fawcett today. Not me, Gov, appears to be the line from Clarence House. We all know that uh, Prince Charles and, uh, and, and Michael Fawcett are um, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, or uh, if you prefer um, something more um, uh, literal, Achilles and Patroclus. Um, that's what they are. Um, and nothing that Michael Fawcett will have done will have been done without Prince Charles's say so. Now, we know before when uh, Prince Charles and, uh, was, was found uh, to be allowing the selling of gifts which had been given to raise money, uh, Michael Fawcett fell on his sword back then. Michael Fawcett has a habit of resigning and a habit of being brought back in when no one's looking. And this is what is going to, that's the attempt now which is happening, the so-called investigation by the Prince's Foundation. I mean, what a joke. Uh, at what point uh, do people say this law are judge and jury in their own court? Uh, there's no investigation there at all. What will happen is Michael Fawcett will get wrapped up with the knuckles, he'll disappear for a while, and when no one's looking, Prince Charles will bring him back. At least that's the intention. And it's part of our job, I think, and I say our job, those who believe in democracy and proper process, to make sure that doesn't happen. Now, uh, it's uh, the poor uh, monarch, of course, has had to suffer the slings and arrows uh, of uh, press coverage of her, her sons. Uh, her, her daughter appears mercifully to live a better life. Uh, but this is particularly damning, not because Prince Andrew's uh, actions uh, were not themselves serious, but he's not going to be the king. Uh, if, God forbid, Her Majesty was to pass this very evening, uh, one second after she passed, uh, Prince Charles would be king. Well, technically not one second after technically, there has to be a Privy Council meeting to, um, to approve that. And, and, by you'd the way, need, and you'd need to be at it. Uh, yes. There's, well, there's a Privy Council meeting held in secret with a small number of people like the Prime Minister. There's then a, there's then a gathering with, when we all acclaim Prince Charles, to which I shall be invited. Um, I just suppose that's my opinion at the point. Uh, at that point, but um, I'm very happy you to give someone. You can always shout it out, Norman. Well, I may do, but in any case, um, you, you're perfectly true. The Queen has done her best over the years. Um, she's relatively scandal-free, I think it's fair to say, um, and uh, she's been landed with uh, the uh, disaster that's Prince Andrew, uh, dodgy prince per excellence. Par excellence, he's got uh, Harry and Meghan bleating over from uh, the other side of the Atlantic, and now she's got her near to the throne, who is uh, up to his neck in, well, sleaze. That's the old-fashioned word, George, you'll know it, sleaze, or we prefer a different word, corruption. Yeah, sleaze is the, is the euphemism. It is actual corruption. If you are selling knighthoods for money, what is that but corruption? Indeed, and if you just look at the other aspect of this, the idea that money would come in for the Prince's good cause uh, in return for support for an application for citizenship. Does that ring a bell to you? Can I tell you what it reminds me of? 
It's when I asked my parliamentary question back in 2001, I think you were in the Commons at the time, and it revealed that Peter Mandelson had been um, chasing the Hinduja brothers for money for the Millennium Dome and supporting their application for citizenship by way of uh, our return favour. And he had to resign, if you recall. Now, Prince Charles, no doubt, won't be resigning, but he ought to. Yeah, uh, uh, we can accept that some people can be fools and some knaves, and some are both fools and knaves. Uh, Mandelson uh, is de very definitely a knave, but not a fool. He didn't write a letter to the Hindujas saying, no. give me money and I'll give you a passport. No, he wrote a letter to the Home Office, which, which is what came out for my parliamentary question. So he did actually leave a trail. But, I mean, look, I mean, Prince Charles is up to his neck in this. And there's no point in him trying to pretend that um, Michael Forster is as, as unknown to him. Those two are inextricably linked. And uh, the questions, I think, on this affair are not for Michael Fawcett. They are for Prince Charles. Yes. Do you think Cressida Dick will investigate this, as you're going to be asking her to do tomorrow? Well, I have actually asked her today. I've actually written, because I had a spare an hour, so I wrote to her this afternoon and asked her to do that uh, and put the case. Uh, and the letter, I think, will be... Uh, the intention is to publish in the Sun tomorrow, the letter I've written to Cressida Dick. She ought to investigate it because, on the face of it, there's, a, there's an offence being committed. And uh, without being grand about it, I am a privy councillor, and she ought to be listening to what I'm saying about these matters. I am there to advise the Queen officially, and I'm advising Cressida Dick that there's an offence being committed. So she ought to look into it. However, the Metropolitan Police studiously failed to look into the allegations made against Prince Andrew, although they were allegedly committed in this country. And at that time, the benefit of the doubt had to be given to the victim. That was the official Metropolitan Police line. It didn't seem to apply to Prince Andrew. So I think there is a reluctance in the Metropolitan Police to date to pursue matters where the royal family is involved. But, you know, George, we are only called for the law, even Prince Charles. Well, yes, until he becomes king, and at which point he becomes the law. Uh, the, uh, the, this wonderful book that you wrote, I, I can't speak highly enough of it, uh, and what do you do, uh, brilliantly zeroes in on the finances. Follow the money. That's what you have done. You can balk at the flumery and the privilege and the, uh, and the uh, unelected power and so on, but when you follow the money, you find corruption, sleaze, Yes. Malfeasance on really quite a grand scale. Laws are yes. deliberately written or not written to financially benefit the Crown. You've got it all in your book. Well, yes, I think I have, George. And uh, the fact of the matter is the royal family believes it can be uh, immune from any sort of um, public uh, accountability. It thinks it's, ar it's arrogant enough to believe it can get away with it. And because it has got away with it to date. Uh, but it should be held to account. Um, you know, the Queen and all the members of the royal family who receive public money are public servants. That's what they are. Just the same as MPs, members of the House of Lords, councillors, people who work in the public sector, the NHS or anything else. They work for the public with public money and need to be accountable for it. And they're not. And I hope what will come out of my book and, I, and, and come out of episodes like this is um, the, 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 the eyes of the public being opened to what's being done in their name. More power to your elbow and your pen. Right, Honourable Norman Baker, thank you for joining us. I'd like to be a fly on the wall at that Privy Council when Norman 
gets the chance to query uh, the uh, elevation uh, to the monarchy of Prince Charles. How's the poll going? Who's the best of the Kennedys? Jack, 41. Bobby, 46. Ted, 13. He's moving up after my uh, endorsement. Uh, Chris in Colchester. Go ahead, Chris. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wondered if you'd seen um, Noam Chomsky in an interview had said that uh, the unvaccinated should be forced uh, into isolation. Well, on an island somewhere. No, at home or what, you know, just whatever, mm. basically. Um, that's, uh, that's rather uh, draconian uh, from the great uh, champion of freedom. Where did he make this statement, Chris? Uh, it was in an interview, I think it was a month or two ago, um, but Max Blumenthal had, uh, posted the clip of it on Twitter. Um, so I saw it, it was quite disturbing. I think he's, uh, uh, I think he's losing it, old uh, Chomsky. I must say he's looking more and more like the wild man of the woods. And that yeah, is well, uh, wild, uh, wild. You know, and it's a very, off, thank you for, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your that, show, Gigi. Uh, great, great, great debate, Chris great. And that. I'm Scottish, I'm very passionate about what's happening there, you know. I had a great mom. She was Scottish, Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. I love Scotland, and I love the Scottish food. It's great food. I said to Melania, you know, haggis. Look at that. What's more than more Scottish than that? Me. I am that haggis. She said, what, thin-skinned and full of crap? Now, for a variety of reasons, the Kennedys were quite important in my young life. Uh, as a six-year-old, I could recite substantial sections of President John Kennedy's uh, inaugural address. Uh, we had uh, the portrait of the American president on our wall uh, next to the Pope, just under the Pope, slightly below the Pope. It was very important for us, a person of Irish ethnicity and Roman Catholic faith becoming president in redneck wasp America was an important breakthrough for us, or so we felt. Uh, we saw them as, I, I suppose, I didn't think so at the time, but I now can see that we saw them, if you like, as a Camelot, a kind of Arthurian uh, American royalty. I loved Jack Kennedy. I wept uh, when he was murdered. Uh, I recall vividly uh, when my father came out to go and play darts on a Friday night, as he normally did, and said uh, that the president had been killed. And I wept there on the pavement uh, at the age of nine. Uh, just four years later, uh, then uh, politically active uh, teenager, I saw the billboard of the Evening Telegraph, the local Dundee newspaper, and the billboard said that Bobby Kennedy had been murdered. And I wept again, again on a pavement in the street. When Ted Kennedy ran for president, I gave our now editor... Uh, my then uh, intrepid friend, uh, Ron Mackay, a journalist who was in the United States covering the uh, presidential uh, nominations uh, when Ted Kennedy was running for the Democratic 
nomination, 1980, I gave my friend, I think, a £10 note, a Scottish £10 note, with a letter, uh, and asked him to give it to Bobby Kennedy, uh, Ted Kennedy, for his election campaign. And I got a very good, nice letter uh, from Senator Kennedy after he had failed. So what I'm trying to say is, I don't really like the besmirching uh, of the Kennedy name. And so when I heard about this new book called Bombshell, The Night Bobby Kennedy Killed Marilyn Monroe, I didn't like it much. But I didn't dislike it enough to discount it, and certainly not to refuse a platform to the author of the book, who joins me now. He's Douglas Thompson. Douglas, welcome to the mother of all talk shows. It's quite a shocking idea that the uh, Attorney General, uh, the, um, the uh, brother of the slain president, uh, murdered uh, an icon like Marilyn Monroe, murdered anybody. Uh, how do you justify that? for the material is, um, is Mike Rothmuller, uh, very much a patriotic American uh, who, like you, was, um, was a Kennedy fan of, and uh, a man distraught uh, when he discovered, when he went through the uh, files of the uh, intelligence division of the LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department, evidence which pointed towards uh, the culpability of Bobby Kennedy um, being involved in the death of Marlon Monroe. Um, Mike uh, found all this out during 10 years with the LAPD when he went through all the files, secret files. He wrote about them in 92, um, making mention of Marlon Monroe, but not getting into the detail at that time. He didn't think America was particularly ready for it then. Subsequently, uh, lots of uh, questions that came up at the time of Marlon's death in 62 about where Bobby Kennedy was. Was he in Los Angeles when it happened? Was he not? It was denied by Bobby Kennedy, denied by all the authorities, um, especially the, who, the man who became the chief of police, Darrell Gates. Um, subsequently, in 1985, Darrell Gates admits in his book that he knew all along that Bobby Kennedy was in town. A couple of years later, um, a Beverly Hills policeman acknowledges that he stopped the Attorney General and his brother-in-law, Peter Lawford, uh, the, eve the night that Marlon Monroe died. Uh, all circumstantial, but it all put Bobby Kennedy smack in the middle of Los Angeles when it happened. Uh, which had been vociferously denied until that point. Douglas, what um, would be the motive uh, for uh, Bobby Kennedy bumping off Marilyn Monroe? At that point, the Kennedys were coming up to the, you know, they were they were looking toward the next election. Um, they remembered, of course, you, you, you're talking at a time just coming out of the 1950s, Eisenhower, um, crew cuts, the short haircut, the whole kind of 
uh, middle America attitude toward um, philandering um, and just really the, the behavior of the president, the behavior of Bobby Kennedy. And I think they were threatened by Marla Monroe, who was about to, to have a press conference on the Monday of the, you know, the following the weekend in which she died, uh, to announce that she'd been having an affair with the Kennedys, the brothers, um, that they talked to her about uh, Cuba, about Castro. Um, so it would have been political, uh, an end, a political end to the Kennedys at that point. So that was the motivation. But you would have had to kill a lot of women, uh, Douglas, because uh, Jack Kennedy was was basically uh, banging anything with a pulse, including in the White House. What was so I, well, special about I, this one? Well, I've, well, exactly. But you, as you would have realized, I think it was last week, last weekend. Um, there's the revelation of an intern that she, she had an affair. Um, a real Me Too type of affair uh, with Kennedy uh, back in the White House. But of course, all of this material was being sat on uh, by the press. Secret Service agents never said anything. It, it really was a, you know, a lid on it. Uh, nobody else was threatening to go public. No, again, nobody else was as big, really, in that sense, as, as Marla Monroe. And Joe Kennedy, the patriarch of the Kennedy family, had been having an affair with Gloria Swanston in full view of all of Hollywood for um, years. And no one had ever, you know, there was never a mention of it. So I think the, the Marlon was a, you know, it just was a threat to them. I take your point that there, was, there, were, there were plenty other uh, possible targets for them, but I think if she was the only one, it was... Was, was going to come out of the woodwork. Uh, the, I mean, I know the Kennedy brothers were uh, close, but were they really that close that they'd both be sleeping with the same woman? Oh, there seems to be, from, from all the surveillance of them, from the uh, testimony, from the wiretaps that were... Uh, there was... I mean, Marlon's home was wiretapped. Peter Lawford, the brother-in-law's home, is wiretapped. Um, the wiretapping, you know, party houses all across Los Angeles. Um, and Kennedy himself was spotted by the, you know, by the OCID, the intelligence division, uh, with Marlon. There's photographs of him with Marlon. And obviously they've got Bobby Kennedy with her as well. So I think it's, um, um, and from what she, what Mike Rothmuller saw in the um, files, which was this diary, um, which he took, he took contemporaneous notes of it at the time. And they, there are some parts he just didn't know what they were talking, she was talking about, left them out. But he had, you know, various mentions of both Kennedys, of Jack Kennedy sleeping with her, with Bobby Kennedy sleeping with her, and what they were saying and going into the details uh, of the relationships, which, you know, we go into in the book. Um, the thing is, the, 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 the fact that Bobby Kennedy uh, kills Marlon Monroe uh, is the headline, but I think the whole book shows the uh, LAPD working like a Praetorian guard 
for the Kennedys going back into the 1950s all the way through. And it's the cover-up, which in a sense, if, you know, when you get into it, is even more shocking than the, the actual event. Um, uh, they certainly won a Praetorian Guard for Bobby in, uh, on the night that he was murdered in that very same state of California. But J. Edgar Hoover hated the Kennedys uh, with a vengeance. If, if all this was known, why wouldn't Hoover have uh, ensured that was all in the, in the public domain? Hoover, at, at that point, Hoover, the, the Kennedys, Bill Parker is the ch chief of the LAPD. He is in the running through the Kennedys to replace Hoover as head of the FBI. Hoover has the dirty material on the Kennedys and is using it on them to stay in position. So that's why Hoover had the information, but it was in his interest not to make it public, but to use it as leverage with the, with the Kennedys. Now, uh, Douglas, how up close and personal uh, does the book allege uh, that uh, Bobby got to Marlin on the night of the killing? As, uh, as the book contends. I mean, the are book. we really saying he killed her with his own hands or did he cause her to be killed? Oh, well, I'll, t I'll take you through how, how it happens. Bobby Kennedy, this is the story uh, given to Mike Rothmiller by Peter Lawford, who was in the room when Marlon died with Bobby Kennedy. What happens is that Bobby Kennedy arrives in... Los Angeles, goes to see Marlon at her home at lunchtime on the day she dies. There's a, it doesn't go well. There's arguments. Uh, there's a lot of animosity about what she's going to say, what she's not going to say. And there's a sort of search for a diary and paperwork. Um, various people had been at the home earlier in the day. They now vanish. Um, are out of the scene before this kind of um, contretemps goes on. That night, Peter Lawford and Bobby Kennedy return. Uh, the scene becomes much more hysterical. Peter, uh, Peter Lawford is in the room trying to calm Marlon down. Bobby Kennedy seems to... It just seems to kind of go out of the picture for a moment. And Lawford gets Marlon to sort of calm down for, for a bit. It gets her sitting down on the couch. Um, and then Kennedy, come, Bobby Kennedy comes back into the room with a glass of water in which he's stirring something, which he then says, this will help you, Marlon. This will calm you down. She doesn't want to drink it. Peter Lawford encourages her to drink it, um, saying, again, this will help you just because she really is at this point hysterical. She drinks the, the liquid, which is by then clear. Um, within a few seconds, according to Lawford, she's comatose. And within little more time, she's dead. Uh, at that point, uh, he's he's freaking. Bobby Kennedy seems to be more together than uh, one must presume. He was pretty distraught too, but according to Lawford, more concerned, more together than he was. 
what are we going to do? Kennedy says, we've got to get out of here. They go to the door. As they go out, uh, LAPD guy is coming in the door. Um, at that point, Kennedy and Lawford leave. That's when they're stopped uh, driving at speed. Lawford is speeding in Beverly Hills. The cop stops him, recognizes Lawford, and Lawford says, I'm, I'm taking the Attorney General to the airport. And the cop says, you're going the wrong way. So he reverses on Pico Boulevard and off he goes. Um, at the same time, the OCID cops are cleaning up the, um, uh, the what we call it, a crime scene. Um, at that point, there is an official call to the LAPD that Marla Monroe is dead. And a guy called Sergeant Jack Clemens is the first official policeman to arrive at the scene. Um, he's a guy who contacted Mike Rothmuller after Mike made mention of it in 92 uh, and worked with him, um, information which you know, is in the book. Um, and Mike got all, a lot of stuff from Clements, who was bad-mouthed by the LAPD and kind of uh, turned into a bit of an outsider because he said that what that happened was that there were several photographs of Marlon holding a phone um, positioned this way and that way. Um, and obviously the body had been moved. Um, there was evidence of, of sort of liver damage in the back where a body would have had to have been like, you know, turned about like a mannequin, really. Um, so all of that was happening as Bobby Kennedy is flying off up to uh, San Francisco area where he was on a family visit, rejoins his family and vanishes. And then from then on, all the various stories, Lawford's story, uh, everybody else, the ambulance man, everybody else, is basically written by OCID. Um, and that's the story that was given to the public. It was a suicide. It was, and of course, being that time, um, 60, again, back to the Eisenhower, you believed what authorities told you. You believed the police, you believed the uh, government, you believed the council, you believed everyone. Um, but that's what it was. It was a story. And you know, since then, there's been uh, there's been more books, more films about what happened, than than more films in Marlon Monroe ever appeared in. I would think, um, but it's I think Mike got to the core of it through placing Bobby in the room uh, with the drink. I think in the book we say he killed her. Um, I when people say he well, murdered her. Uh, I don't know if you'd get a conviction of murder in, under uh, Californian law. It would probably have been manslaughter. Um, well, I don't know. It's quite obviously premeditated. If, as they're leaving the house, yes. uh, yeah. a clean-up uh, squad is coming in, uh, it's clearly uh, a murder because it's premeditated and, indeed, there's a conspiracy uh, to kill her. So it's, it's murder in the first degree. The only problem with that, of course, is he's the Attorney General at that time. So, and the LAPD are, yes, but I, I, I take your point. Yes, I mean, it's, it's the, um, 
And I think we went, well, I went into it great length because uh, Gary Allen uh, Powers, who was the spy in the sky when I was in Los Angeles, he was the, he was the weatherman in a helicopter. But he was the American spy plane guy the, who was exchanged uh, for the Russian spy. Uh, he was the Gary one Allen shot, Powers. shot down, yeah. Well, when he was shot down, yes, exactly, sorry. But he had a, he was given a particular uh, poison so that if he, had, if he was shot down, he would take this, like a like a cyanide pill. It wasn't a cyanide pill, but similar to that. It was, made, it was like a silver dollar, the size of a silver dollar, and with a pill inside it. And um, Gary had the, as it turned out, the good sense not to take it. But at the same, that, when that was being developed, it was exactly the same time, and it was being developed by a CIA associate uh, who worked with Bobby Kennedy. So you, you go into the realms of uh, the conspiracy uh, the availability mm. of the poison, um, and so on. And yet, and, and yet, and yet, Douglas, yes. the, the cynic will say, all the people involved in this story are helpfully dead, uh, none can sue, and the diary, the documents uh, that the police officer was relying upon have never materialized, never surfaced. So this could just be a down-at-heel, uh, disgruntled LAPD detective selling a story? Uh, it could be, but the problem is that he became a very serious um, uh, intelligence consultant over many years uh, for... Um, that makes him more suspicious, not less. OK, well, but he also gave evidence into the assassination of Bobby Kennedy... Uh, to a grand jury uh, because of his expertise. Um, he's been helping Bobby Kennedy Jr. looking into the assassination of his father. Um, the files, when they when he first wrote about the files in 92, the building where they were housed was, was uh, I was going to say handcuffed, but it was chained up by the then police chief and all the files were then sealed. Um, and he has, as I say, he's got very good notes of everything that he read and the folders. And it, it, it's not just on the Marlon Monroe case. It goes into, and in the book, we talk about the you know, various governors, movie stars, people just, uh, they, they wanted material which gave them leverage on anybody. So um, I, think, I think the book makes a considered uh, case for the prosecution, we say that we, with the evidence, we think we'd get a conviction from it. But I think it needs to be read further than the headline to get the full picture of the circumstances where this would happen. Um, I think anybody is, um, I was going to say foolish, I suppose that's the right word. Anyone is foolish to accept anything is 100% certain. But I would think this is certainly in the high 90s of, um, of, of the circumstances of Marlon Monroe's death of actually what happened. Douglas Thompson, author of Bombshell, The Night Bobby Kennedy Killed Marilyn Monroe. Thank you for joining us on The no, Mother thank you for having me. of thank you. All Talk Shows.
Norma did ring in, uh, but she's not feeling that great, so is watching at home and will have, I know, uh, the get well soon wishes of this vast global international audience. So the last caller will be Kenny in London. Oh, it's a one for the money. Go ahead, Kenny. <laughs> Hi, George. Yes, I'd just like to uh, recommend the uh, Elvis Presley documentary to you because you seem to be a bit an Elvis fan. You've I was a member of the official Elvis Presley fan club of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and had a metal badge, red and silver, to prove it. Go ahead, Ken. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. I was probably an Elvis fan before I was even born because my mum... She used to tell me that I'd kick on the inside of her womb to the rhythm of blue suede shoes. Uh, there you go, there you go. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. So the documentary I want to recommend to you is called Elvis Presley, The Searcher. And it's absolutely an, um, a, such an amazing documentary. It goes into so much detail as to... Who's made this? Who's made out. it, Kenny? I don't know who made it. It's just, it's on YouTube. You can buy it on YouTube. It's like £8, but it's worth it's every called, penny. It's called Elvis Presley. The Searcher. It's the based Searcher. on book. Yeah. It's, uh, it's mostly narrated by, I think, uh, Priscilla Presley, but there's many other contributors for the Memphis Mafia and these, the people who know, knew him the best. The well, you know, uh, I will, I'll check that out and uh, I may yeah. very well uh, buy and it. Oh, uh, George. Yeah, quickly. Also, do you remember when I phoned up to talk about the trans issue, but I got cut off after I started singing because I never asked your permission first and you thought I was a nutter? Go ahead. Give me yeah. some bars. Well, the song that I was going to sing was actually an Elvis song. It's called Stranger in the Crowd, and I'd like to sing it now if that's okay with you. Go ahead, Kenny. Okay. I was standing on the corner at a quarter after seven. I was down to my last cigarette And the clock in the window at a quarter to eleven I was watching all the people passing by me Going places Just the loneliest guy in the town Looking for a friendly smile But all that I could see were faces And then just like the taste of milk and honey, I found the stranger I'd been looking for. Bravo! Oh, Absolutely brilliant, Kenny. Absolutely brilliant. One singer, one song. I've got the mic now. Uh, um, an unexpected ending to what I hope you'll agree has been a fine show. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, Come back next week at the same time, the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. 
Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 